0: Well, good morning. Shared with first service today that this has been a pretty tender week in my life. I said goodbye to a good friend of about 27 years on Friday, a man who has really helped shape me. And then yesterday, most of you are aware, we've been mentioning it, that Charles Seibert passed away. Charles, uh, well, we gathered uh, yesterday in Abilene, a lot of us ministers, um, hung on to each other and asked the question, what are we going to do now? Uh, Charles was our minister, and uh, he's a man that uh, probably is one of the main reasons I'm still in ministry. I know he's one of the main driving forces for me preaching right now, and um, anyway, it's just been uh, difficult, and we don't know what the world will be like without Charles Seibert, but uh, we still have our Lord and our Savior to encourage. We're going to look at Mark chapter 6 today and um, this is sort of in the middle of a story but as I thought about this I thought you know what we're really doing today is we're reading this text to get us ready to tell a story and then we're going to tell a story to get us ready to hear a scripture. Uh, sometimes we open our Bibles and we kind of jump right in and read a scripture and we're not really ready to hear it. But I think that this story really prepares us to hear the power of God's word. So let's be standing, please, as we hear this uh, bit from Mark chapter 6. And this is where Jesus is about to send his 12 disciples out to preach and to teach and to uh, heal and to cast out demons. Calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, He is Elijah. And still others claimed, He is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the man who gave us Sherlock Holmes, was a great practical joker, or so the legend goes. He really enjoyed trying to find something to do that would sort of knock his friends off balance a little bit. Well, there's a story that one time he got this idea that he would send several of his friends an anonymous telegram. And in that telegram, it said, everybody knows about it, run. By the end of the day, Every one of those friends had left town. The power of a guilty conscience. I think all of us in here can relate to at one time or another in our life, carrying something on our conscience that just seems to be there. There may be some of you sitting here today that are wrestling with that very thing. Something was said, something has been done. And it just won't seem to go away. It's just not something that you can push aside and push out of your mind and it's gone. In the middle of the night, the oddest times, it comes back. Well, this passage that we read, as I said, sets us up to hear a story about a man with a guilty conscience. And hopefully if we hear his story, that will set us up to hear some powerful scriptures and to let the Holy Spirit speak to us with the word of God. The story begins as Jesus gathers his 12 apostles together and and he multiplies his ministry by sending them out to preach and to teach, giving them the power to heal, the power to cast out demons, telling them to go out and to preach to people, repent. Repent. And off they go, and they do such a good job that Jesus' name and his fame spread even greater throughout the land. And it spread to the point where even the higher-up authorities are beginning to take notice of this Jesus. Who is this guy that's doing all these things? Who is this guy that everybody's talking about? Well, one of the guys that really is, is interested in knowing more about this is King Herod. Now, Mark calls him King Herod. Herod liked to be called king. He actually wasn't a king. His dad had been king. His dad was the King Herod whenever Jesus was born, and the one that tried to get rid of baby Jesus by killing all the babies in the, the city of Bethlehem. His dad had been a pretty powerful man, a very brilliant man, but a very evil person as well. But he had died shortly after Jesus had been born. And some of his sons began to take some power and Herod, this is Herod Antipas, he had been given some power and control in the province of Galilee. Historically, he's really known as Herod the Tetrarch or Herod the Ruler. And his grasp on power was rather tenuous and in order to maintain some exposure and some of influence, he had to do a lot of politicking. And dirty politics they were. He had to make sure that nobody was saying something about him that would undermine him and what bit of authority that he had among the people. One man had done that. His name was John the Baptist. John the Baptist had challenged Herod the Tetrarch because Herod was somewhat of a, a weak man. And his story is told here by Mark. And what a telling it is. I know that most all of you have read that at one time or another, but I encourage you, I'll even let you read it while I'm talking if you really want to. But if you want to wait, later on, just pull up Mark chapter 6 and and look beginning in verse 17 and read the story of what Herod and John had happened or what had happened between Herod and John. Uh, Oscar Wilde took this story and made a, a really powerful play out of it. Uh, Richard uh, Strauss took it and made it into an opera, Salome. Has anyone seen that opera or listened to it? It's, uh, I have to warn you, I mentioned this in first service as well, that uh, if you do go home and, and grab that opera and slam it in the DVD player, uh, it's kind of R-rated, so don't blame me for that part. But it really does explore all the emotions and all that's going on in this story. But the story is primarily about a man who is living with a guilty conscience. John the Baptist had pointed at Herod and said, you are living in sin because you have your brother's wife. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, his brother Philip, who was another one of these rulers, had married a woman named Herodias, who was Herod's, the reason she was named Herodias, she was in the family. She was Herod's niece. Well, Old Testament law didn't forbid that kind of a marriage, but she had married Herod's brother, Philip. And Herod and Herodias, maybe, I don't know, you have to sort of fill in the blanks somewhere. Maybe they'd been at a family gathering and they just, their eyes kind of met and the birds began to sing and the fireworks went off and they fell in love. And Philip and Herodias, over this affair, had divorced. Now, again, under the law they were living under, that was okay. I mean, there was a provision for divorce. But the Old Testament is very specific that under no circumstances can you marry a woman who's been married to your brother. That just was not to be done. And so John the Baptist had called his hand on it. He said, you may be trying to gloss over this. You may be trying to act like because you're a king or a ruler that you can do whatever you want to, but it is wrong. It is wrong. Well, Herod was the kind of guy, if we read through the, or around in, in, in between the lines, that he, he kind of vacillated, and it seems like he was pretty convicted that what John was saying was right. Herodias, on the other hand, was furious. How dare him do this? How dare him ruin her reputation like this? How dare him go around saying stuff like this about her and Herod in public? So she pushed Herod to have John arrested. And Herod agreed to that. He arrested him, put him in prison down in one of his fortresses down east of the Dead Sea, which is interesting because that's really not the area that he was in control of. But he did have a castle or a fortress down there. And he put John in there. And he would sometimes call for John and have a conversation with him. And it says in the Bible that when he did that, he was greatly perplexed. John confused him. He could recognize in John the power of God. And he respected him. But he was in a bind. He was a politician. He had to play the game. And he had to please his wife. And so he kept him in prison. Well, you know how this story goes. That there came a time, and there was a party, And Herod had his friends over, and there was plenty of wine, and they were feeling pretty good. And somehow, the entertainment ended up being Herodias' daughter. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us her name, but Josephus does, that her name was Salome. And it really was improper for a princess to do the kind of entertainment that she did at Herod's party. But they got around those rules as well. And and Salome was called in and she performed what is now called the Dance of the Seven Veils. That's the R-rated part in the um, opera, by the way. And Herod was enchanted. Herod was a man of appetites. He indulged his appetites. And there in front of his friends, he complimented this little girl and said, I'll give you anything. You are so good. Up to half my kingdom I'll give you. Well, the girl didn't know what to ask for, so she went and asked Mama. Mama saw her opportunity and said, Ask for the head of John the Baptist. So Salome did, and Herod was in a bind. He was afraid of John, and yet he had, in front of his friends, In front of people that he had to impress, he was a politician. He had to play the games. He had to follow through. And he ordered that John be beheaded. And from that moment on, his conscience was there. When there was a loud noise, he jumped. Someone came up behind him, he was startled. Wake up in the middle of the night thinking, what have I done? And most of all, most of all, every time something went wrong, he knew why it had gone wrong. Because he deserved for it to go wrong. And he was being punished. Such is the power of a guilty conscience. So when Herod heard about Jesus, his first thought was, it's John. John is still at work. John has been raised from the dead and he's come back to haunt me. Now, I don't know what Herod ended up doing with his conscience. You know, the truth is, we can walk over a conscience long enough that it can kind of get stifled away and put away and we can kind of live with it. But there's other things that can be done with a guilty conscience as well. In fact, the very word of the gospel is that you can be set free from your sin. The power of the gospel message is that a conscience that has been defiled can be made pure and holy again. So I wanted to tell this story to get us ready to hear some wonderful news, news that I know is glorious news to some people in this room today. It has been glorious news in my life, and I know that is power in yours as well. There's many verses we could turn to, but I chose to go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, if you have your Bible or your iPhone or your iPad or something. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to read verses 13 and 14 here. And these are verses that we could just read over very quickly because it's in a discussion of the Old Testament law of how people used to could take uh, an animal and sacrifice it and and that sacrifice would make them ceremonially clean again because if they had done something really bad they couldn't go to worship with God's people because they were unclean but if they went and offered this sacrifice it purified them again to join in with the worship of God however it did nothing for their conscience it kind of pushed things aside But the writer is telling us that the day is now here where our deep inside can be washed and the thing that hangs on to us can be put aside. Let's read this verses. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls, with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works so that then we will be able to worship the living God? The glorious news of the gospel is that the blood of Christ takes away sin, yes, but on a personal note, it gives us a clean conscience to live. Not long ago, we were talking about how the Bible really never defends the existence of God. Remember, we were talking about Job and how Job was questioning all these things and his friends and all of that. and we talked about how the Bible really never does give us arguments for the existence of God. What the Bible does is to invite us to come and to meet God. To come and to experience God. I cannot stand up here and prove to you that Jesus was the Son of God. I cannot stand up here and prove to you that he was resurrected from the dead. I cannot prove to you that Jesus still lives and that he from the glories of heaven reigns over all the earth. I cannot prove any of that. But what I can do is invite you to come and to meet him and to experience the cleansing power of his blood. That it is in the blood of Christ that your conscience can be made clean. One other passage, Hebrews chapter 4. This is talking about when Jesus, the high priest, he said, so we, so we have, this is verse 14 of Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to that confession, Let us hold fast to the confession that he is the Son of God. Let us hold fast to the confession that he is Christ. Let us hold fast to the confession that he has power in our lives today. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We, we don't have a high priest who's just looking at us and saying, shame on you. How could you do that? I don't understand why you would even think that. I don't understand why you would ever do that. Now we have a high priest that says, even though I lived without sin, I was tempted. I've been there. It's tough. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we do have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet he didn't sin. Let us, therefore, approach the throne of grace with boldness that we may receive mercy and find grace when we have a time of need. The glorious news of the gospel is that there is power in the blood of Christ, that in his sacrifice our conscience is washed clean. Later on, after Jesus had sent these disciples out and after the whole gospel story had played out. His disciples experienced that for themselves. Matthew, no telling how many people Matthew had robbed of their fortune. Carrying that around, Zacchaeus, another tax collector. How could he live with the fact that he had taken the livelihood away from widows? How could Peter live with the idea that He had turned his back on Jesus, had cursed him. He could, because the power of the blood of Jesus washes our conscience clean. When the Apostle Paul was still Saul and had put Christians in prison, Ananias came to him and said, Brother Saul, arise, be baptized, wash away your sins. Peter tells us later on that baptism now saves us because it is the appeal to God for a clean conscience. If today you need that power, it is here. We invite you to come and not to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because we can argue some way and tell you he is, but to be convinced because you have experienced the cleansing of the blood of Christ in your life. That's the invitation of the gospel. It's our invitation to you. Let's stand and sing.